Welcome back to another glorious episode of the Boombastic Cast. You have both gentlemen in the Boombastic Media Studio this evening. You haven't seen that in quite a little bit, you know what I mean? But nonetheless, it's still a beautiful thing, you know what I mean? We've got a great guest for y'all this evening, this afternoon. Um, the great Ralph Sutton will be with us today. I'm just arranging my uh, stuff. I forgot to put the microphone near us. So hopefully the audio isn't different from the first part when I started talking to this part. But yes, the great Ralph Sutton, man. Now, some of y'all out there might not know uh, the name immediately, but the presence you may know if you're a big fan of, you know, comedic podcasting. Uh, Mr. Sutton is the co-owner, I believe, of Gas Digital, him and Louis J. Gomez um, of Legion of Skanks and Real Ass Podcast fame. Um, and stand-up comedian extraordinaire. Uh, we got Ralph in here. He does that. He's also a co-host of the SDR show with Big J. Okerson, which is devastatingly great as well. And he's also a co-host on that Good Sugar podcast, which is, uh, is a good deal. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, we, got, we know about that Good Sugar. Oh, yeah. Not, not that nose candy, but, you know, <laughs> the good and the bad sugar. No, this Good Sugar can be found in fruit, in case you were wondering. You know what I mean? Um, watermelon yeah. has a lot of sugar, but it's supposedly good sugar. You know, for anybody out there that knows of my diabetic troubles, that I killed off diabetes. Before I killed off diabetes, I had diabetes. Yeah. That's how it goes. Got to have it to kill it, like the vaccine. Yeah, it's it's all about uh, trying to find uh, the good sugar. And it's like everything. There's the good and the bad. And you got to find ways to bring in the good to make yourself a little bit longer and healthier life. Uh, that's the battle that we all have to have to uh, fight. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. So uh, with that being said, without any further ado, everybody get ready for the man, the myth, the legend. Come to the show, Mr. Ralph Sutton. All righty. So, Ralph, how you doing? You know, I'm doing great. Uh, it is a, I've, I know we can talk about this. I like doing full disclosure. It is a Sunday when we're taping this. Is that allowed to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I get a lot of shit, especially from uh, Tim Dillon and Big J for running and posting my updates. I just did 12 miles yesterday and I feel fine. We're usually, you know, I've been doing it for about a year and a half. If I run the next day, I feel like shit, but it's great to get to the point where now I did 12 miles and I feel totally fine. And I know. Tim and uh, Big J are rolling in their graves hearing me talk about it. but uh, there we Quite go. literally, possibly. Yeah, in their soon-to-be graves. Soon-to-be <laughs> graves, yeah, for sure. Well, they are two bigger gentlemen like ourselves. Over yeah, it's always, it's always the guys that don't look they could last 12 minutes that make fun of my 12 miles. That's what's been happening. I think it's a secret jealousy type thing. <laughs> you know I, mean? uh, I wish I could run uh, 12 miles, but I can't even take it 12 feet. Without well, just, you know, that was me, man. I, you know, I didn't start until I was 50 and yeah. uh, I couldn't run to the end of the block without getting winded. And it took a year of going out every other day for a year, no matter what, through rain, through snow. It was awful. It's a 90 degree weather, 18 degree weather. I just never stopped. Shit. Yeah. It's, it's, you got to dedicate yourself yeah. to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I hate it every time. Just so you know, every time I fucking hate it in okay. my head. I'm like, just go home. It's fucking warm and beautiful in your house. Get out of here. But I still just stick with it. Whatever. Anyway, enough already. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. We love it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, well, we, like, uh, I know that, what well, fun fact that I heard uh, from, since we're starting from the beginning, 
You mm-hmm. have a twin, which I thought was a fun fact. Yeah, it's now, very weird. Yeah, it's, yeah. We, look, we look nothing alike. He's 5'7", I'm 6'5". Um, we were born New Year's Eve 1969, and I was born two minutes before midnight. He was born two minutes after midnight, so that put us in different days, different years, different decades. <laughs> yeah. And we actually lied on the birth certificate because we would have been in different grades back then. Really? And also being, being Jewish, we got the extra discount for another dependent in 69 by lying and saying we were both born in 69. Word up. Yeah, yeah that's a very uh, exclusive club you're a part of. I can't imagine there's too many twins that have that situation going. Down. Right, and I, I say this, which is weird. Is first of all, Jews, not that I'm religious at all, but it's like yeah. 10% of the world. You know, 10% of the world is a twin. 10% of the world is over 6'3". 10% of the world is left-handed. I'm all of those things. At a size 15 shoe, less than 10% of the world. I have all those things. There's, very, there's only one of me. That's about it. Word up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a tall. I'm 6'4". What are you at? 5'7"? 5'5". Oh, five, five, five. He's a short guy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just I, about... I'm almost 6'6". Six, six. I'm like 6'5 six, and a half. Yeah. So, so you're one of the few people I can actually say that my friend Matt actually looks up to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 6'3 is pretty tall. Jay's 6'3". And it's funny, I was thinking about the other day, the, the Legion of Skanks, the, the, one of the bigger podcasts on the network, all three of them are pretty tall dudes. You know, Dave's yeah. tall. Lewis is probably the shortest of the three, I think. But they're all over six feet. That's rare to have three dudes that are six feet plus. It really is. In entertainment, you see a lot of short people. For sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a weird deal. Like Usually because the short people are uh, have like upset Napoleon complexes, <laughs> and it comes out in the form of comedy. Well, yeah. that, that, that's true. Plus, also being short and 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 on the hefty side, uh, that kind of uh, puts me closer to the uh, comedy uh, roots of uh, the classics like John Belushi and yeah. you know, yeah. John Candy. I should have been named John. Honestly, I think I think that should have. Well, what it's a twenty-seven club, right? So you passed that already, I imagine that. They oh yes, yes. I I am the big four O, and yeah, well, my body doesn't like me. Yeah. Uh, congratulations on seeing the other side of thirty. Yeah. Uh, if you don't hold hope to lose the John thing, because if you die without your license, you'll be able to be a John Doe for a little bit. Ah, see, that's, see, that, that's a fun see, fact. My buddies, thank you. And you could just legally change your name if it bothers you that much. <laughs> that's true. I might have to. You I probably you will share the name with multiple rappers. Probably. <laughs> you don't want to do that. That's horrifying. You know what I mean? Yeah, but hey, I mean, if I change my name to John, then you know I can also be a John when I, I pick up a chick. So it's like a double uh, no John works. thing. Yeah. Are you are you coming out to picking up escorts on this podcast right now? Is that what you're doing? Hey, uh, hey, hey! Love is love, man. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it is, you're paying one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if if it's a relationship, you're still paying. <laughs> It's true. true. My, my uncle always said that every girl's cash and carry. Exactly. It's true. Yes. yes. One way or the other. Yeah. The know. only thing is that with prostitutes, I think it's a little bit more on the up and up. You know, you know, it's you, more open. you paid for a service, you get in the service. But well, I, I mean, I've had that. This, like, you know, Jay will make fun of me because it was well documented on STO that I'd fly girls in once in a while to go spend a weekend or we'd fly away for somewhere like the Caribbean. And he's like, well, the only reason why those girls are doing it is because you're flying them. So it's, you know, it's basically, I was like, Jay, you pay the rent. It's the same <laughs> yeah. fucking thing. Yeah. You know, Christine does, it's the same thing. So you're paying for the dinners, you're paying, it's, it's all the fucking same. It's just uh, different levels of uh, acceptance to it or whatever you yeah. want to say. 
Yeah, yeah. But, but the big thing here is that if you're flying them out, okay, things go south. I mean, okay, you're out uh, the money for the, you know, the hotel room, maybe the cafe or whatever. But if if you actually get down and do the paperwork, get married, they get half your shit. Right, that's true. Okay, too. yeah. So they yeah. they make out more if 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 they get you to sign a little piece of paper. Yeah. I don't know the uh, common law marriage rules in New York, but Jay and Christine, I think, have been together. I think like ten years. I'm not even sure eight or nine. I think ten is yeah. usually where you have the rights to say half your shit's mine. I think right. that's about right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so so in other words, make sure that you cut out at nine. Yeah, nine yeah. quarters. You're when my out. brother and I lived together, when we were like 24, we bought an apartment together in New York City. And two 24 year olds owning an apartment in New York is fucking cool. Oh, but yeah, you yeah. fast forward 15 years later, and you're basically common law married to your brother. There's nothing fucking cool about that. <laughs> yeah. So we sold our apartment right when we were about 39, and uh, he went and moved to Miami, and I stayed here in New York. Word. Nice. Well, speaking of family, your your roots in comedy go way back, you know, with right, your you mother. Got, you guys did some research, it seems. We, yeah, cool. we try to be professional, you know what I mean, That's a little cool. bit. Yeah, men after my own heart. Yeah, my mom started in comedy as a nightclub promoter in the early 80s. Like, I think it was like 82, 81, for about almost like 10 years. She did a long time. But she helped define the careers of a lot of people that got huge. Ray Romano, Chris Rock. Mario Cantone, Susie Essman, I mean, even Gilbert Gottfried, Larry David, all these people were playing there pretty regularly. So I was a kid, and it was just cheaper than a babysitter to go sit in the back room and watch these shows that I never knew that, oh, my God, look what I'm seeing. I'm seeing at the time they weren't fucking comedy royalty, but they all became comedy royalty. In fact, I was in L.A., and I heard Ray Romano's voice next to me at a table. So I turned over, and I said, hey, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, my mother's name is Leah Sutton. He's like, oh, my God. And we start talking. And that's why Ray ended up doing my podcast last year was solely because I mentioned my mother's name, which is amazing to me. The gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And in fact, I was uh, about 10 years ago, I was at um, the, the comedy cellar on a first date. And the girl liked comedies before guest digital and all that other shit. But we just were at a comedy show and Chris Rock showed up on stage. He was like just trying to work out material for an award show or something. And afterwards, I said, she loves Chris Rock, the date I was with. And I said, you know, the comedians usually go upstairs to have a drink after. We could go up and maybe to meet him because she loved him. So we go upstairs and there's just a bunch of people around him. And I weasel my way in and say, I'm sorry to interrupt. My mother's name is Leah Sutton. And he goes, all right, hold on, everybody. Dude, just sit down. This guy's mom helped me start my career. He signed something for my date. And, you know, we had like a good two, three minutes with him. And then we left. And I thought walking out that I felt pretty cool. And then I realized I basically just said to Chris Rock, hey, my mommy knows you. And there's nothing <laughs> cool about that. Hey. She was like a Mitzi Shore kind of. Yeah, thing. she was a mid like a less successful Mitzi Shore on yeah. the East Coast, you know, for sure. But uh she definitely was she had a great uh eye for comedy for sure. She that's great because a lot of mothers don't help their sons get pussy. You yeah, that's I mean? true. Yeah, my that's mom did. To thing. this day, she'll still do that. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. The, yeah. Gift, the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. 100%. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, did you get a chance to meet Bill Hicks? You know, I got to see him perform a couple times. Yeah. And I did. And he actually, him and Otto and George, two like old school, you know, like, yeah. oh, they, they both would make fun of my brother and I on stage a couple of times because <laughs> we were kids, you know, sitting yeah, yeah. in the back. And, like, I remember, I think one of the lines was, like, you know, Ralph and Joe, my brother's name is Joe, 
do, only do as many drugs as the next guy. If the next guy is, I like some big drug guy at the time. I forgot who it was. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was like, it was funny to hear Bill Hicks make jokes about us. And at the time, again, he was kind of a nobody, you yeah. know, but, uh, he now is a legend and I got to see him just like I got to talk on the phone with Andy Kaufman because my mom Hi. was friends with Andy Kaufman and we were, you know, I think I was like seven or eight and, uh, taxi was on. So we loved Latka just because it was a funny voice. So yeah. he would talk to us as Latka on the phone, and we loved it. We had uh, we had director uh, the director of uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, Tommy McLaughlin, on the show, and he used to do like um, almost like uh, like improv stuff. And he said that he met Kaufman way back, and he he said he was in this group when Kaufman came out, and they were all smoking in the parking lot. And he was telling them, I'm going to try this new thing where I be this lounge singer, but I'm real mean to everybody. And, like, he created Tony Clifton, like, right there. I was like, That's whoa. Great. That's really yeah. cool. He was a how, unique dude. A very how was, unique yeah, dude. how was Andy Kaufman? Because a lot of people probably seen that documentary recently with Jim Carrey where he mashed up because that's kind of how Kaufman was. He really didn't know who you were dealing with. Well, I mean, we that. were. he just was a sweet Latka voice to me on the phone. you know. Yeah. But I know my mom was pretty close with him. You know, like, they were to, they would get together – she tells the story the first time she saw him, it was at Catch a Rising Star, which is a comedy club in New York, and he just came out and ate dinner on stage, and that's all he did. Yeah. You know, there was no <laughs> jokes or anything. And she was so fascinated by him, they just they built a friendship from that. It was pretty wild. Yeah, he lived the gimmick, like like Gilbert kind of. I hear Gilbert's yeah. voice is his actual voice, and Dice, right. I think Dice fell into that pretty. You know, you, Dice became Dice, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Dice was on the network for a little bit, and I love him. But, you know, they're, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen probably does it the most effectively, where yeah. he is very clearly Sasha Baron Cohen, and then he'll be one of these other characters for a time being. Dice became Dice. And, you yeah. know, just like Marilyn Manson became Marilyn Manson. Yeah. He, they lost their own identity, and they became, even, what's his name? Uh, the, the, the actor that everybody does it, Christopher Walken. Christopher yes. Walken became a car caricature of himself. He does it, like, even when he talks, he, he over... Uh, puts in that affectation because that's what people expect. Like they've lost their true identity. I think it's like a, it's an old school, like uh, old busy thing where like, they're so that gimmick is everything like wrestlers. You know what I mean? That right. gimmick is everything to them. So like they don't break it in front of the fans out off of the stage and that it just eventually yeah, takes over. I know people but like that. For, for dice, it was dice was just one character. He did a bunch of characters. Yeah, when he started. Volta, and then yeah. It just got so popular. That's what it just became dice. You could even say to a lesser degree, like Samuel Jackson is, is Samuel Jackson in every movie. He plays that over the top loud, you know, cursing guy. Yeah. But I'm sure that's not always who he was. I'm sure there was other aspects of his personality. I remember when Samuel Jackson was like the nerd in every movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, like yeah. A, then 2000 hit or whatever. And he was just like the ultimate badass. Yeah. It is. But now he's just that caricature, you know, I, yeah. and I, you know, I don't know what it is, but it's funny. Cause uh, I mean, I love dice was one of my favorite comedians of all time. And then he just be, and I remember my ex-girlfriend dated Marilyn Manson before I dated her. So he used to call the house and we saw it over the course, even during our time frame, because she dated him before he was like super popular. But as yeah. he got super popular, he just became more wacky and more wacky and more wacky. With Manson, what do you think it is? Like, uh, like uh, yes men all around him, as well as feeding. There's got to be like something more than just fe feeding the gimmick. You know yeah. what I mean? We had um the, the the guitarist who passed away, and his name is escaping me right now. But one of the original Spooky Kids was on the show, oh. and he said it. And he knew it was over when he came into the studio one day and referred to him as Brian. And he said, what, why are you calling me Brian? I'm, I'm Marilyn Manson. He's like, no, you're not. You're fucking Brian. 
But yeah. your state, and his dad's he's like, all right, this is it. And he knew he was going to get let go. Yeah, he went to Hollywood. Yeah, what are you going to yeah. do? What are you going to do? Yeah, I what mean, uh, kind of uh, another example is kind of like uh, with Nicolas Cage, where, you know, the thing is that yeah, he's he's gone so known for that, you know, over-the-top craziness right. that, I mean, that's pretty much his career now. Now, and I also, also you, you wonder, sorry to cut you off, but you wonder sometimes now because you know he fucked up all of his money and shit. Yeah. He's probably just taking anybody willing to pay him, yeah. and they all just want that character. He may not want to do that anymore. I don't know, but he definitely is the same guy in every movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is, one thing I will give Nick Cage credit for. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I'll give Nick Cage credit for is that you've got a lot of other actors that are in the same boat where, you know, they were kind of big and now they're kind of just doing straight-to-DVD <clears throat> movies, right. that kind of stuff. But Nick Cage at least still seems like He's having fun or trying to do something. I mean, you have those like Bruce Willis that, I mean. Yeah, Bruce Willis, I don't know I'm, what the fuck is going on yeah, there. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, I can't watch a Bruce Willis movie now because every time I, I watch him, it looks like he's trying so hard not to do a good job. I mean, yeah, I don't I, know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm looking too much into it. But he looks so bored in every single thing he does. And you hear that classic uh, story from Kevin Smith that hated yeah. Bruce Willis. So he could just be an asshole. I don't know. But the last two or three Bruce Willis movies were unwatchable. At least yeah. like with uh, Nick, you got Pig was supposed to be incredible. I didn't see it. And then there's the horror one he did. Was it like Maria or Molly or something? Oh, it was called. Uh, Mandy. 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 Mandy is supposed to be great. So like, you know, at least his movies are getting some critical acclaim. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think a big thing with Nick Cage is that even, uh, when he gets a job, I get the impression that he tries to throw himself into it, whether, right. you know, he loves the material or not. I mean, another perfect example is uh, Robert Lozardo. Um mm-hmm. I, I worked with him on uh, a few films, and... And and the films I've worked with him are more of the independent, straight to like DVD kind of releases. And the honestly, the 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 prep that he puts into it, even in these smaller things, is about the same as he puts in when he was in the movie The Mule with uh, Clint Eastwood or on the TV series Nip Tuck. I mean, there's actually a thing where don't talk to him before he goes on set because he's just getting in, into character. Well, you think you feel like Nick Cage actually wants to be there and Bruce Willis is just doing it because this is what's offered to him right now. So yeah. he might as well just, and he thinks it's beneath him. The best, uh, the best acting that Bruce Willis does. And uh, Randy Quaid does this too, is when they walk out of scenes, like that's how you tell an actor is old. Cause when they start walking, they get all like wobbly legged <laughs> and like, they, I don't know why, but they always have that weird wobbly leg effect. Like there's that Quaid commercial where he's like pushing some type of medicine. And like at the end, he like walks to the end of like a fence and he turns around. He's like, you see him from, from the chest up. He's like, he was in the eighties. You know what I mean? And then he walks away and it's like, his legs are made out of like toothpicks. He's like, Oh, funny. Maybe he just was standing there for so long and he's old. He can't stand up for too long. Yeah. 
lot of just stand up and wait, stand up and wait. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think I think Ralph was right when he was talking about that. Uh, whatever you get offered, though, because uh, George Lucas has a famous story about how he didn't want to always make those Star Wars movies, but whenever he had he had something he wanted to do, they'd be like, "Nah, I would rather have a Star Wars movie." You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah we just had uh, Adam Sulkin on SDR, who is the showrunner and producer. EP of, of Family Guy for the last 13 years. Yeah. And we got to, he got to show the Family Guy Blue Harvest episode, the first Star Wars, to George Lucas three months before it came out at Sky, Skywalker, whatever it's called, uh, Ranch, Ranch, Ranch. Yeah. just to see his reaction to make sure everything was okay before they released it. And yeah. he said that he just fucking laughed the whole hour. Like he loved every single bit of it. And he said it was like the greatest moment of his life. Yeah, nice. That's nice. cool. That's a cool moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. That's one of the things that uh, I mean. A lot of people say different things about George Lucas. I've never met him, so I can't give any actual like uh, opinion on it. But one thing I'll always appreciate about George Lucas over a lot of others who have been like that create their own franchise. A lot of them. Or like, you know, if you do a parody or if you do a fan film or you do something like that, they're like, oh, we're going to shut this down. Or you right, can't do right, this. right, right. How dare you? But I mean, even George Lucas actually like, um, uh, forget the name of it, but there's like uh, an entire award show for like, you know, fan films. Of oh, Star wow. Wars. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah and which, he, and he'll know, go to them. Yeah. He's <laughs> like totally on board with it. And he, I mean, if you do like a fan film of like Star Trek or something else, you know, you can do it, but you know, it's not like you're going to get any, you know. Also, I think you could argue when you're George Lucas and you're worth billions, maybe it doesn't make as much of a difference to him where I'm watching the doc now on the uh, Star Trek series. Like it goes through, it's called like the center, center chair or something. I don't know if you saw it, it's on History Channel and they're breaking down like every aspect of Star Trek from the first series to the first movie, like one episode. And, you know, uh, Roddenberry was not as involved as you'd like, as you think he was. And he was not rolling in the dough from it because he was kind of boxed out. So maybe the Roddenberry family, because they never made that much money, are a little more product- protective of it. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, that does happen. I mean, I can definitely understand that. Uh, I mean, of course, going. Uh, it's it's funny because I mean, I've I've been a fan of both Star Wars, Star Trek, and a bunch of other franchises. I do have to admit that maybe it's because I'm getting older. That mm. I mean, I appreciate what they've done and maybe what they do in the future, but I'm not like a lot of others who are like, "Oh my God, you can't do that because that's like." That does sacrilege or not canon or people get yeah, you know, yeah. I, yeah they do that a lot in the Marvel films people get freaked out if they you know change the powers a little bit or they make a boy yeah. or girl or a Spanish guy a black guy or whatever but I mean it's fucking whatever man it's not real it didn't really happen you know so yeah. just uh it makes no sense I don't get it I really don't get that yeah. at all I mean I mean the big thing is honestly I mean like I was saying with the, you know Lucas is that I. I mean, if I was a part of a, a huge franchise like that and people loved it so much that they made their own, you know, fan webisodes or mm. whatever, yeah. I mean, I'd be kind of supporting it. I mean, even if I don't make any money off of it, because it's keeping what it's I've keeping done. keeping the spirit alive. I, I agree 100%. The weird thing for me 
is I lost interest in Star Wars. I will watch, like I'm watching all the new Star Trek shit, whether it's the, the, the cartoon yeah. or the new season of Discovery. I, I'm into it, but somewhere when, uh, Han Solo's solo film, I just lost interest. I, I stopped that don't care anymore. I just don't know what it is. I'm not going to watch it day one anymore. Yeah. Like I did for every other fucking film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, uh, it's exactly the same thing. Because, I mean, while I always loved Star Wars, Han Solo was my spirit animal. He was he was the reason I watched, because mm-hmm. I loved the smuggler. That, I mean, I never could really get into the Jedi Knight aspect or the Luke Sky, but, you know, the guy who's like, you know, I'm doing this for a buck, but, you know, this is still right, so this is why I do it. Then, I stopped. You know, I stopped halfway through the film, and I just said, "That's it. I was done. I fucking yeah. don't watch anymore." Yeah. yeah, I mean, when when Han Solo uh, was killed off, I was like, "Yeah, it just does. It just doesn't work for me." So yeah, <laughs> I kind of uh, lost a lot of love for the franchise after that. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Well, I'm sure. I'm sure they're not gonna be too remorseful that they lost two fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you feel about the Mighty Whiteys? Oh shit, that's funny. That you really, you really, what did you watch? Every fucking YouTube video I ever put out. Um, <laughs> so when we were kids, you know, I was, I had a very weird upbringing. You know, I grew up in, uh, Brooklyn, as you probably know already. And I went to a private elementary school. Only had a hundred kids in it from first to seventh grade. So my graduating class was five people. Two of them were my brother and I. It was just a really sheltered, there were two black kids in the school. I think one Asian kid. Like it wasn't the real world. Yeah. And then we were going to high school. My parents wanted to put us in a private high school, and my brother was like, "No, we want to go to like a fucking normal high school with normal kids." So we went from a school from first to seventh grade that had a hundred kids to a high school that had four thousand kids, and it was a real uh, cultural shock. Holy shit, we're here! And the first week was a welcoming freshman event, and there was breakdancing. And I had never seen it before. I was 13. My brother and I were like, what the fuck are we watching? And we became obsessed with breakdancing where we would practice every day. We would live, like we would go try and make money in the streets. We would, every day we would practice and practice and practice. It was so popular in Brooklyn that they had a breakdancing like free time in the school where you could just, uh, you know, apply to it. And for two hours there during the day, you'd get an hour in those two hours. You could just go practice and nobody cared, right? And we got good enough that we were like in, we would do battles and we would, uh, we were in a movie. Crush Groove, right? Crush Groove. But only four of us were white that were good enough that they would let us break dance with the black and Spanish kids and they called us the Mighty Whiteys. And that was our nickname from like 13 to 15 while I was obsessed with breakdancing. Yeah. I mean, I pretty think rock and, rock and roll is pretty synonymous with you right now, but back then you were like a hip hop. Hip hop. I was very, I had short hair, the fat lace sneakers, the track yeah. suits, totally ridiculous, you know? <laughs> um, but I loved it. I, I, all I cared about was as soon as school was over, we'd go home and start practicing. That's all I fucking cared about. Nothing. Girls didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Just getting those moves down was all I fucking, it was hours of training every fucking day of practicing and trying to get better. For what reason? I have no fucking idea. You know, just, we just, we loved it. It was so much fun for us. Were you more addicted to the, like the, the craft of like doing the dance or did you, the hip hop music itself? You were a big fan. Both. I was obsessed with all of it. In fact, I was on a, um, 
a hip hop show. I forgot who it was not that long ago, but they were amazed at my old school hip hop knowledge. I grew up around it. You know, I was 82, 83, 84. That's when it all started. Yeah. So I was very well, not only did I well aware, but deeply ensconced in, in hip hop back then. I fucking loved it. I, yeah, yeah. I, my best friend, one of my best friends to this day was my friend back then, right? He was uh, one year or two years older than me. And he was a rock and roll dude, long blonde hair. We became friends in computer class, right? And he constantly pushed, try to get me into rock music. And I fucking hated it. He only got me on Led Zeppelin's Cashmere because it has that beat that a lot of hip hop songs were using. That in an, uh, a Billy Squire song and an Aerosmith song, the beats were taken for hip hop. And that kind of got me a little bit more into rock and roll back then. And then I became obsessed with rock and roll when I realized I was getting a haircut one day. And this gay guy that was cutting my hair said, you would look a lot better with long hair. I said, oh, I'll try it. I'm not, I've never gotten laid yet. So all my friends had sex. Let's, let me grow my hair. So I let my hair grow at like 15, 16. And then when I started, uh, like, uh, my first year of college, 17, I had longish hair and a girl hit on me and I couldn't believe it. I was like, what the fuck? A girl actually is hitting on me. I couldn't believe it. So I got more and more into rock really just at the time because it was a great way to meet chicks. And then ended up really falling in love with the music. Yeah, I've always heard having that long hair in that time was literally like saying, I want to fuck. And people just yeah. came. You know, it like, was so too. easy, dude. It was crazy. I <laughs> would walk into clubs. I'd walk into a rock club and a girl would just grab my arm and start making out with me. It was a wild time yeah. in that time. It doesn't. That shit just doesn't exist anymore. Shit. Before we get off of the hip hop thing, did you enjoy like the crossovers of like Beastie Boys and Run DMC, Rick Rubin, that that stuff? That was my first concert. Was Run DMC, Beastie Boys. So Fuck to yeah. get uh, Run DMC, I know we had DMC on the show twice. We got I had yeah. a rap battle, uh, which was so fucking embarrassing. But uh, you know, with uh, DMC judging us. But um, yeah, I mean, that, I was obsessed with that shit. I never got. I met one of the Beastie Boys once um, when I was working at this company here in New York called Juice Press, and all he did was complain about the music, which kind of annoyed me like that's not what i want to deal with right now but uh you know i was obsessed with all that shit for sure yeah fuck yeah yeah it's yeah. A, a great crossover with aerosmith too you know what i mean that uh, that one was wild was. Yeah. i didn't know who aerosmith was when I, that fucking song came out with the you know with run dmc and i remember watching the video for walk this way i'm like who the fuck is this maniac with the long hair and what's <laughs> going on you know it seems so dangerous to me at the time I would say hip hop was, which is funny now, hip hop was safe and, uh, rock was more dangerous because as hip hop was emerging, most of the lyrics of early hip hop was like, I'm better than you. I got more cars. I can spend more money. It wasn't really anything dangerous, but rock seemed fucking dangerous at the time. Yeah. We, Aerosmith's local to us. They're like a couple towns over from us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steven Tyler is, is, is a, he's a weird dude. I met him at Walmart. Like one Christmas, he came in. I, I thought he was an old lady. He I, looks like uh, an old grandmother now. It was sure. horrifying. The guy yeah. came in. He's like he had like a handler with him with like a, a green goatee. Like the sideburns were red. <laughs> who I think I later found out. I think he's a musician in his own right. That's like highly respected. He's a brother, part of a brother group. Oh really? And, uh, yeah, yeah. And I seen him, and he caught my eye, and I was like, "What is this?" Because he's an older dude. You know, we don't typically see a lot of older dudes all colored out. You know what I mean? And then there's a little old lady behind him, and I was like, oh. And then everybody's crowding around them. I'm like, oh, that's Steven Tyler, dude. That's so funny. <laughs> and, uh, so when, when I was doing my radio show, I forgot what year this was about, but he put out, this is after the Aerosmith album, he put out a solo, a solo album, not yeah. album, 
uh, a, a solo book, of autobiography, right? And his manager at the time, I was friends with. I never met Stephen, yeah. but I don't know the exact story. All I know, I was told, Stephen likes your voice. Can you record his um, book before it comes out into a microphone so he can hear how it sounds, which is yeah. weird. I don't know why. They were offering me not a lot of money, but I was like, well, I get to read Steven Tyler's fucking autobiography before it comes out. And all I got to do is read it into, I'll fucking do that. You know, so they sent me the money. They sent me like the loose paper of the book. And I read the first couple of chapters in, and it was, and I'm sorry if Steven listened to this, I apologize. It was fucking horrible, right? It was unreadable and it made no sense. And it just, it was hard to read and I hated it. So I made up a story. And said that I got hired to do something I'm not, and I gave him the money back and said, I'm really sorry. I'm just not going to be able to do it. But it was fucking, uh, an abortion of a biography. It didn't sell well either. I believe it, dude. Yeah. When I met him, he was on too much medicine the day I met him. I remember. And he was all fucking, dude. He couldn't even talk. He was so fucked up. He was just like ushered. It was like they were oh, ushered. People bad. were like taking pictures of him. Yeah. I Good met sad. Joe Perry. I met Joe Perry once or twice and interviewed him once, but never met Steven. Yeah. Someday. I'm surprised he's still going. They were doing some heavy drugs. Yeah. Well, I think that the older generation was a lot tougher. You know, just, that's, that is what it is. Yeah. yeah. So you, you brought up the rock show, uh, the tour bus. Yeah. We how'd were. That, we, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, how'd that kind of come about? So I was a strip club DJ for a long time. You yes. know, I did that for like 14 years. And before that, I was running rock clubs in New York City um, back in like 90, 91, something like that. And then around 91, 92, when um, rock changed and grunge became big, all the rock clubs in New York started closing because it wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll anymore. It was stare at your shoes and do heroin and stay home. Like yeah. It wasn't a party vibe anymore. So all the rock clubs started closing. At the time, all the strippers would come to my rock nights because they all wanted to fuck the rock stars. So I became friendly with all the strippers, right? Yeah. And then... When that sort of thing was happening, and I didn't know what the fuck I was going to do next, one of the managers at a big strip club in New York called Scores said, dude, you like know all the girls already anyway. You have all the music anyway. Why don't you come audition to be a DJ at Scores? I was like, all right, fine. I ended up getting a job at Scores. I did that for like 12, 13 years. I don't even know how fucking long I was a strip club DJ. But towards the end of it all, I may be doing it like eight or nine years or something. Um, I'm in Jersey now at a club called Lace. And the day shift guy, I come in and I hear a new voice. And the day shift guy has this fucking great voice, good personality on the mic. But I could tell he had no idea what the fuck he was doing. Like, it seemed like it was his first day in a strip club. Yeah. So I go in and talk to him. And it turns out he was a radio guy that just moved up from Georgia, got a job at radio, and he was doing this for extra money. So I said, I'll make you a deal right now. I will teach you how to make money in this business. You get me a audition or interview at the radio station. And he said, sure, we'll do that. Happened. I ended up getting hired at the radio station doing overnights one night a week for $6 an hour. It was two hours away from my house, but I just wanted to do radio. I did that for about three or four months, the midnight to 6 a.m. shift, Saturday to Sunday. And I was working in a restaurant at the time, too. I was a managing restaurant. So I'd leave at 6 in the morning and drive two hours to the restaurant and then start my shift at 8 in the morning and work all day. It was fucking horrible. But I really wanted to do radio. So about four or five, maybe I did five shifts, eight shifts. I don't know how many it was. I pitched the idea 
of a 80s rock show. At the time, nobody was playing 80s rock on the radio. But when I played it at the strip club, people would freak out when Guns N' Roses came on, when ACDC came on, because there was no YouTube or Spotify where you could just hear what you want. You only heard the radio. So it was like, holy shit, I grew up to this song. Oh, my God, you know. So I pitched the idea. I talked the guy that I got the job from, the, the DJ from the station, I was from the strip club, to do it with me. And we started Sunday nights, 10 to midnight in 1999, doing a one, a two-hour rock radio show. Fast forward six months later, we were on the biggest rock station in New Jersey. Fast forward six months after that, we're syndicated on about five stations. And then a few years later, 10, 20, 40, we got up to about 100 stations. And I did that for 14 years of running a rock show, eventually just from this room. But for the first eight or nine years, it was at the rock station, New Jersey, called WDHA. And you put in a lot of legwork, too. Didn't you travel around to try and get you yeah. guys in other places? We could. We got a syndication deal, and I thought at the time, oh, like Howard Stern, you get syndicated, you become a billionaire. Yeah. I didn't know that there's a difference between being syndicated and being syndicatable. We were syndicatable, but who the, why would anybody take a show hosted by some fucking idiot they never heard of? Yeah. So. We were up on a satellite, but nobody was pulling it down, right? That's what happened. So one Saturday at the end of the show, the show ended at midnight, me and my co-host drove to Miami on a Saturday night till got there about Sunday night, took about 22 hours of straight driving. On the way down, we were just turning the radio knob, listening for anybody playing anything rock and roll, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, Kiss, Motley Crue. We wrote down what station and what town we were in. We got to Miami. Spent three days making every call possible, set up about seven or eight meetings, and then drove our way back up and met with seven or eight stations and came back with five stations in a week just in time for the following Saturday to do our show that week. And now we were on six stations, including the one we were broadcasting from. Got it done in a week. And I called my syndication company and said, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? I don't even know what I'm doing. And I got us five stations in a week. You've got nothing in six months. What are you doing wrong? So I ended up firing them and doing everything on my own, doing the ad sales. Then we had to deliver the show on CD on our own, and I built my own CD recorders. It was fucking ridiculous, but, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. You fucking figure it out. Part of the hustling spirit in you got you to where you're at today, man. It's very good underground rap hustle to it. Like you, like ICP did that, Master P right. did that. They just kind of hit the road and like paved their own way, which I always respect the hell out of, of course. Yeah, and also that's what it is, that face-to-face contact with yeah. people. They're like, oh, these guys seem like nice dudes. We'll fucking take their show. You know, yeah. when I uh, had to build our CD duplicator, because they the, the satellite was no longer available to us because we weren't a big company so we switched to not being live but delivering on cd to build a cd duplicator in like 2004 it was twelve thousand dollars to buy one a one to eight cd recorder i didn't have fucking twelve thousand dollars i found online blueprints for building a cd recorder and it cost me 800 bucks and i just had to burn the software into the cd recorder and set it up a certain way and i got it working and that's how we serviced all of our stations for the next 10 years. And then when I let the show go, uh, eventually we switched to digital. So we didn't have to do that anymore. But when I did that, I sold that CD recorder for $1,000. 10 years later, I made $200. Word up. Nice. That's the way to do it. That's a good Jew right there. <laughs> <laughs> you, you brought up uh, going to the restaurant uh, earlier. I know you, you managed or ran a restaurant for like yeah. four years, right? 
<clears throat> I went to cooking school. So when I started the radio, when I started the restaurant, I wanted to learn every aspect of it. I didn't want to just be a manager. It's like, you do this, you do that. So I spent a week as a busboy. I spent a week as a runner. I spent a week as the bartender, the waiter, whatever. And then I took a non-matriculated classes at a cooking school for about a year while I was there so that I could also speak to the chef and understand at least the same, I'm not going to be at his level, right. but have some basic understanding of how to do everything. You know, And it was a great classes where you did one like week of all knife skills, one week of like learning how to do. The way they taught it at that school, which was smart, was each week you learned a method, whether it was basting, broiling, sauteing, sauveing, whatever it was, and you spent the whole week doing that one style of cooking because there's only a finite way to cook things. If you understand that, then you can figure out everything else. The recipes are easy to follow if you have a great basics of the, of the cooking methodologies. So that's how I learned. And then I ended up running the restaurant. I did that for four and a half years. And then also here in New York, there's a company called uh, Juice Press. They have like 90 locations now. But I worked with them when they started because the friend of mine was the owner. And I helped them go from two stores to about 30, 35. And then I got out of it. But now him and I do our health podcast together and we're opening up a, a brick and mortar space in uh in january february for that which is called good sugar i'm very ancillary involved with the with the space but i did i am uh i do the show with him as well yeah yeah the um i've often heard that the the restaurant business just as cutthroat as like the entertainment business you find that miserable it's yeah. fucking miserable and the, the thing about the restaurant business much more so than any other one is that you only hear from people when they're unhappy yeah. They don't, if they have a great experience, when's the last time? Think about this. You went to a restaurant, had a great experience and went up to someone and said, I just got to tell you, man, that was great. Nobody does that, but anything wrong, you certainly fucking complain. There's a, a theory that if you like a restaurant, you tell 11 people. If you, uh, sorry, if you like a restaurant, you tell one person. If you don't like a restaurant, you tell 11 people. Mm. So that's just the nature of, re I just, fucking hated the negativity i mean entertainment business is no better but at least you'll also hear from people like you guys that reach out and said hey we love what you're doing that never yeah. happened in fucking uh the restaurant world yeah yeah i mean it's funny going back with what you're saying about how you wanted to learn everything about the restaurant uh, uh business from being a bus boy and and, and all that uh, Matt and I, we do movies and independent films, mm -hmm. and we're a lot the same way. That you know, I my my passion is the acting, uh, the directing, the producing is Matt's passion. Uh, but we, I mean, I edit, and you know, we we do everything. We there's not an aspect of filmmaking that we have not done or have taught ourselves to do. It's so important. Like I, so I do a lot of podcast consulting stuff on the side. And I was in uh, a couple of years ago on an entrepreneur magazine about how to start a podcast. And there's always going to be people better than you in every aspect of it, you know, no yeah. matter what it is, but know how to do everything. Don't be beholden to your editor, to your social media guy, to your video guy, know how to do it. You're not going to be as good as someone else, but at least understand the fucking job so that you know how to talk to them. And a, a lot of people I speak with that are hosts have no fucking clue. If it takes five seconds or five hours, they have no idea. So just yeah. get get a basic cursory understanding of the space you're in. It is what it is. Yeah, because that's always, I mean, if you do, have, if you do uh, get lucky enough to bring people in, 
I mean, if you can speak with them on the same level of knowledge on right. on the thing, it's a lot easier. And the chances of them, number one, not trying to take advantage of you, and also just you know the, the respect level. Right. I find I mean, the big one is how people will lie. They'll tell you how long it takes to do something. You're like, no, dude. I know how long that takes. I can do it in fucking 45 seconds. What are you talking about? Yeah. And in the same respect, like, I never have the ego that I'm like, oh, I'm above this now. I was a, I produced a show not that long ago. I got coffee every day. I don't fucking care. Whatever we need to do to keep this show moving, I'll do it. I take out the garbage every day. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Whatever needs to be done to keep gas digital going, I'll do it. Hell yeah. We had a flood a couple of months ago. Fuck, me and my office manager were there till three in the morning, like lifting things off the ground and, you know, putting towels everywhere. Think I wanted to fucking do that? I didn't want to fucking do that, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy deal. Uh, since we brought up Good Sugar, we'll talk about that for a little bit. That's sure. a good show. Um, you know, what kind of made that come about? The health? Uh, yeah, you know, so how thing? it started really quickly is um, my partner, Marcus, who started uh, Juice Press, mm-hmm. he got a non-compete two-year deal when he sold Juice Press, he could not do another uh, store. And he wanted to keep his name out there, so he was going to start a podcast. He came in. I told him I'd give you a free couple hours so you can do a few episodes. And he just did not want to do it by himself. So we started doing it together just because he didn't want to be alone. And he's very into yoga, meditation. He's raw vegan. He's this and that. Listens to all these like self-help guys and gurus and blah, blah, blah. And I'm very logical to the point of being a douchebag about it and very (laughs) scientifically based. So I just said as a joke, we should do a show where you try and teach me and I see if I believe it or not. And we we called it the Sherpa and the Schmuck, you know, which (laughs) you have to decide who's who was the initial idea. And that's how we started the show. And it got a lot of traction. Then we were offered to be bought out and be put on another network. We're not on Gas Digital because I don't feel like it's right for my network. And we got, we took the deal and then that company made us take the show down and relaunch with them. But before that happened, they got bought out and then the deal went away. So then we started over again from this ground up, but we changed the name because I felt that Sherpa and the Schmuck, unless you're over 35, you don't know what those words mean. And especially Schmuck is a very Jewish New York word. So he's opened, he was going to open this store called Good Sugar. So it just made sense for the branding practice. All right, let's rebrand it to Good Sugar Podcast. And it started with really the idea being getting me into a better place mentally and physically. I've lost 70 pounds now. You know, I meditate every day for better or for worse. I do yoga three days a week. I don't know if it makes a difference. I'm just doing it like right after this. I'm doing a yoga class, but I'm doing it as part of the journey for the show to see if it makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good show. Everybody should check it out. It's a positive. It's an important show, you know what I mean? A cu- couple of years back, I had a really bad diabetes scare because I Whoa. didn't take care of myself, you know what I mean? And I remember when I, I was, almost died, and I was in the hospital bed, and I was watching the TV, and every commercial that came on was food that was, like, killing you. It was, like, the worst food in the world, cereal, yeah. candy, soda. Awful. And you're like, you look at it like, wow, like, this is all stuff nobody should be eating, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem in American diets is that, Really, nobody can argue the closer you are to the food source, the better. Yeah. No processed food, no packaged food. It's not easy because it's so fucking cheap 
to get a bag of chips or go to McDonald's, it's a quarter of the price. And it's right there, and it's ready in 30 seconds. Right. So I'll always, like today I fucked up. I had fucking four cookies this morning for no reason, you know, and not even like healthy cookies. They just fucking had cookies. I was walking home, and it's like, I'll take four of those fucking cookies, and I shoved them in my mouth. So the thing is, don't dwell on the mistakes. Just say, fuck it, I fucked up, and now move forward. You know, there's a great book called Atomic Habits where they say, you know, everybody fucks up once, but if you fuck up two, three, four times in a row, then you're creating a new habit for yourself. So don't do that. Just bounce back. So right after like this, I'm going to do yoga. I'm going to do my Peloton and I'm going to try and purge that fuck up that I did this morning to make myself feel a little bit better. And the truth is for all of us, it's just fucking baby steps that I wrote this stupid book. I not even really wrote, but I put it out uh, last year called the hundred percent guide to weight loss and fitness. It's just two pages. Eat less, work out more. That's it. And the truth is that'll work for everybody. Whatever that is for you, if you're doing no push-ups, do one. If you're eating a 10-ounce steak every day, eat an 8-ounce steak every day. Don't change your life that much, but six months from now, there's going to be a quantifiable difference. Yeah, I mean, I lost almost 140 pounds. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, sir. And it was mainly portion size and walking more. And, you know, I drink a lot of water. I try to make sure I drink a lot of water. That's big. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, once you get it, it's, it's difficult, but once you get in, like, you know, getting the, 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 the routine of it, like it, you do start to lose it pretty quickly. And right. And then also, by the way, nothing on earth feels better than run the second you're done working out. Yeah. The second I finish that run, the second I finish that gym thing, that elation of, well, I just fucking did that is it, there's no better sense of accomplishment. I've never, I really like, Yesterday, not to bring it up again, but got up at like 5.36 in the morning, ran with my cousin 12 miles at 7, took a little over two hours, came home, did laundry, did the dishes, cleaned the house, made myself breakfast, sat down, and now it's like 10 a.m. maybe, and I think to myself, my brother's not even up yet. You know, I fucking did all that. I don't need to do shit the rest of the day, and that's not even 10 a.m. Most of them, you know, Jay doesn't get up till 11, 11.30, I fucking did all that shit and I have the whole day ahead of me. It's a great fucking feeling. And it really is like sometimes I'm actually sitting in my bed or couch or whatever laughing. I'm like, I fucking did. I don't have to fucking do anything. It's great. Yeah. I know you said you worked at some classic legendary clubs like Lemoore's in Brooklyn, which is like, I hear you hear about people getting stabbed there back in the day and all types of crazy madness. Um, What was that environment like back in that time? Yeah, well, when I, it, it was weird because there was a time when it was like a nice area. Then it got really bad, but the club was always safe, but just, you know, outside the club was not okay. safe. And then there was a time where it just was bad, you know, yeah. so it depends on the years you were going. The first time I was there, I think it was like 86, 87, 87, something like that. And I saw, I don't know how well you know 80s rock, but there's a, um, a woman by the name of Dora Pesh and her band is called Warlock. And I saw the first Warlock show in the United States just by chance. Yeah. Right? We went in there, and I became friends with her over the years, so it was crazy to have that. But I got to see that. She was like this gorgeous, blonde, German rock chick. It was great. And that was a, you know, it was a very unique time. Uh, Iron Maiden there played under a fake name once, and nice. Queensryche's first show opening for Metallica was there. and you know, So I saw a lot of great shit there. But we ran it for about... Six months I was running it. You know, we did uh, one night a week there. For a while I was doing like four nights a week at four different clubs, which was in the rock world. 
Limelight and L'Amour and World Stage Upstate and a club in Brooklyn called Christopher's. And we were just doing a night at each one. And it was fun. I mean, that was when, you know, I was getting laid all the time. I had long hair and I was young and strong and felt great. You know, it was a great time. You think there was more trouble in the, the strip clubs than the regular clubs? or? So I told my dad this a long time ago because he used to always worry about me at the strip clubs because they thought it was like, you know, drugs. I said, Dad, there's more fucking drugs and more prostitution at the restaurant yeah. than there ever was in strip clubs or rock clubs. Interesting. You, I would walk into the restaurant at 8 in the morning, go to the bathroom. The bathroom had a glass shelf. I could run my finger through the dust left over from the cocaine that was done in that. You know, and all of the fucking, not all of them, but we had these gorgeous hostesses. They were getting paid for left and right. You know, like there's famous celebrities that fucked a few of them. And, you know, it was just a crazy time. It was far more decadent and debaucherous because all the cops expected it to happen in strip clubs. So they watched those places like Hawks. They send in, you know, undercover cops and shit. But no one expected it at a restaurant, so it just it was fucking crazy. It was far worse at the restaurant. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, we we did a film called DJ Stand the Man, and um, huh. the, the the DJ that we that we kind of casted for the role used to DJ at strip clubs and used to tell us horror stories and get like blowjobs at the booth. Oh, I would all do that types all the time. Of crazy shit. Yeah. yeah, I got I my record once was I had sex with five different girls in the same night at the strip club separately, where they would come in the booth. I'd have sex with them. They'd leave, and half hour later, an hour later, another girl would come in, and I'd be talking on the mic while I was fucking girls in the booth. It was ridiculous. Damn, man! Sounds like he got, he's got my dream job. He had his well, it was no, it was a when you're twenty two, twenty three, it's a dream job. You it's know, hard but, to keep up with now. Yeah. Not only that, it's like there's a lot of negativity in strip clubs, right? There's yeah. a lot of drugs, a lot of misery. Don't mean to say this to be an asshole, but. Nobody gets into the strip club business because they want to, you know, except maybe the dude, but I mean like the strippers, you know, like no strippers, no girls. Like I want to be a stripper. It's all right. Nothing is working out or something bad happened or I need money desperately. So you know, stripper. So, and also on the same respect, a guy that's super happy in his relationship is not going to a strip club. So you're getting misery on both sides, the girls and the customers and it fucking weighs on you. It really weighs on you. I remember a girl said to me once, I'm never going to get married. I said, why? Because every guy's here is married and miserable. I said, yeah, your sample size is skewed. Your sample is married guys in a strip club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course they're miserable. You got to find married guys not in a strip club before you make that decision because you're only looking at fucking married people here. Yeah. Yeah, people don't consider the mental anguish. Oh, it was horrible. I used to, that's what it this way. There was a time I was making ungodly amounts of money, especially for a 22 year old. I'm talking two grand a night in cash and fucking beautiful girls, right? But getting dressed and holding back tears for having to go work another 12 hour shift at a strip club. I fucking hated it. There was a point where I was so goddamn miserable. I did not want to be there. I would give up anything, but my thought was, where am I going to go where I, I can make $2,000 in a night? Yeah. Like, I have to stay here. I, the term golden handcuffs. I had to stay. I'm going to go make $9 an hour somewhere. And I didn't want to. And what am I going to do? So what I eventually started doing was that's how, you know, I did the restaurant. And I still would keep one night a week at the strip club. And then when the radio job came, which was great about it, was that having that one night a week in the strip club 
made it okay to take a $6 an hour job because I had that $1,500 coming in one night a week. So I used this, the strip club to pivot my life into a better direction. Yeah. But that last day I was at the strip club, I was fucking thrilled. Oh my God. Yeah. Whenever I hear Big J talk about how he used to, he used to be like a bodyguard for escorts, I think. I always go, damn, yeah. the sto- the, you, you get these great stories, but you must get these stories that make you feel like shit. Dude. Yeah, you know it was miserable. I, mean? I fucking, you know, they're sure. In the beginning, when I was 22 and all the, around all these hot girls, I remember the first day I worked at Pure Platinum, which was like the number one club in the country at the time. I'm walking in. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. The club opens at five. I'm carrying in my CD cases, blah, blah, blah. And this hot Spanish girl says, oh, you're the new DJ? I said, yeah. She goes, I'll be in the DJ booth in five minutes. Have your pants down. I'm like, yeah, all right. And I go in the DJ booth. I'm setting up. She comes in, pulls down my pants, and she starts blowing me. I don't know this girl at all. She's fucking gorgeous. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is a test. The manager is going to come in and fire me. This is not right. So I stop her. And then she, I said, oh, I've got to get ready. I, I made it like I was. And she goes, okay, cool. No problem. Just make sure I'm on the main stage at 11 o'clock. So that's why she did it, you know. But at the time, I just thought it was the fucking coolest thing in the world, you know. Yeah. So there was aspects to it. But when you think about that, that's sad for yeah. both of us. You know, it's a depressing thing. But <laughs> it definitely feels good to be out of it. I saw crazy shit. You know, I definitely did. I never did any drugs throughout the whole time I was there. Everybody there was on drugs. Yeah. I was like the only, and I didn't even drink really. So it was a weird experience for me. Towards the end, I started drinking, but uh, it was definitely, I saw a lot of crazy shit and did a lot of, I mean, I had, Jay hates when I tell these stories, but I've had fivesomes with girls in my house, you know, which is ridiculous. Just yeah. strippers that I knew. They all came over one night and we had sex with five girls at once. It was four girls and me, but so yeah. for fivesomes. Uh, and it's happened more than once. It was crazy. But, you know, the truth is at the time, the bad definitely outweighed the good. Yeah. Yeah. You think, you know, like with the strippers and escorts, do you think that it's easier or harder because money is so much connected to sex with them? What do you think? When you are in the world with them, mm-hmm. it's fucking much easier. So I am on their team. I'm part of their world. So right. it's much, much easier. As an outsider coming in, their guard will be up. But yeah. as the DJ, I was their friend. I was the guy that was with them through this. I was going to help them make money, you know? So I was definitely, uh, it was, I didn't know how to hit on a woman because from 22 to 34, whatever, 33, something like that. It was like 12 years, whatever it was. Um, I never had to hit on women. Women would just come into the DJ booth. I started talking to them. I'd get their number. We'd end up having, like, it was just, it was so easy. Yeah. And it just, I didn't know, of course, not with every girl, but it certainly happened relatively easily. And I did not understand when I left that world, oh, you have to actually like talk to girls? I didn't fucking know that. I relearned my whole game at 33 years old. Yeah. Quite a game, though. Quite a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm 40, and I have yet to find my game. So, you know. <laughs> it's, out there. it's still out there, bud. Well, the thing is that I tell you, you find your strengths and you play, for, you play it. You guys work in fucking movies. You know how many yeah. girls are going to fucking love that? Just like Jay will not talk to a girl unless she sees him on stage because he knows that's his fucking superpower, you know? So it's finding your strengths. You guys work in movies. That's like the number one aphrodisiac for every hot girl on the planet. Well, our budgetary wise. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter, (laughs) dude. That's actually true. put out a movie. 
<laughs> He's actually right because I've seen some incredibly beautiful women with ogre guys. It doesn't matter. I, yeah. I do well with women, and I'm not attractive. I just throw out to every fucking girl. If I, what's the big deal? If you get a no, you're in this. You're in the same place you was before you asked. You're not fucking them. What's yeah. the difference? It's true. Now, uh, how did like the ship rocked and like the the, the Motorhead cruise uh, situation? Come? I know that's well, you met Big J doing that, right? I think. No, well, how I met Big J, I was doing my radio show. Yeah. And my co-host quit. Right. I knew he was going to quit. He got a full time job in radio at the same station. I they offered it to the two of us. I didn't want it. He wanted it. He left the show, and I did a summer of co-hosts trying to find who would be a good co-host on the show. Yeah. And one of them was a comic friend of mine named Craig Gass. And um, we became friendly. He's the one who does the became famous on Howard Stern for doing the Gene voices. Simmons voice yeah. and a bunch of other voices. And then we went to a, like a, I'm probably fucking up a little bit of the details because it's so long ago, but we went to like a poison concert together. And after the show, we're hanging out backstage and we took like one or two of the guys from Warrant and Cinderella into the city and we all went to see a comedy show. Big J was performing. And either Big J recognized one of the guys from Cinderella or Big J was wearing a Cinderella t-shirt. I don't remember exactly. It's like 12 years ago now, maybe more. But I'm like, oh, this guy's funny and he likes rock and roll. Like he should come on one week. So he came on like a week or two later and then we became friendly. And we just, I would say we're casual friends for like three years where every once in a while he'd ask me for concert tickets. Every once in a while I'd bump into him at a show. Maybe he got me tickets for a comedy show once, but yeah. that was our relationship. And then through my radio show, they asked me to host Shiprock, right? And it's a little more involved than that, but that's enough of the, of the story there, right? <laughs> yeah. And so after like the third year, they decided to expand to a full ship. And they asked me, do you know any um, like rock and roll comedians that would go over? And I was like, yeah, I know a guy that would be awesome. And I had them get in touch with Big J. Big J comes on. They put us both on hosting a couple of events together, and we just made each other laugh, you know. And he was telling me, "Oh, I started this podcast. It's called Legion of Skanks. We're making some money. We're getting some following. Maybe you and I could do a podcast together." And I said, which is a really douchey thing to say, you know, to be honest with you, uh, podcasting is for people that can't do radio, and I'm doing radio. I've got a show on a hundred stations, so thank you, but I just don't think it makes sense for me. That year goes by, and I start reading all about how podcasting is the new thing, and there was a couple other signs in the universe that told me, oh, podcasting is what you, where you need to be. So that next year, he's on the boat again, and I'm on the boat again. I say, no, I would be down to, to do a podcast together. Let's, let's do a podcast together. And then we decided we're going to do it, and afterwards, we get back, and he goes, well, what, what are we going to call it? And about a year or two prior, I was offered, uh, so I told you that's where that that summer of co-hosting was like two, three years prior. I was going to do a morning show and the morning show was going to call it sex, drugs and rock and roll. <clears throat> and the idea was I was going to go out at night party and whoever was still with me at five in the morning was going to come do a radio show with me. I like that. You know, girls, yeah. guys, whatever. I figured I could do it for a year. It would get a lot of press, yeah. you know, and it would be a wild show to do. And, they, I had the logo made. I had the URL taken. I was ready to do it. And then the money they offered was so bad. I'm like, well, I'm not fucking giving up my life for a year for that. I'm making almost that much on the, on the radio show that's once a week. I'm not going to do that. So I just, all that material was sitting on my hard drive. So Jay emailed me and said, what are we going to call it? And I sent them back the logo that we use. 
And he goes, that's it. We're in. Let's do it. And that's how the show started. It's a great show. That's how I first stumbled into you was through SDR. Okay. You know what through I mean? Legion first or through SDR first? SDR first. Oh, yeah. wow. That's and, rare. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that's both cool. shows. I love both yeah. shows. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, what, do you no, remember how long ago that was? Because we've been doing it now six years, seven years. It's been less than that. I haven't been there for the full journey, unfortunately, but I've probably been there for like three years. You know what I wow, mean? Wow, that's impressive. That's cool. I try. I try to stick around <laughs> like bad aromas. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the clap. Like the clap. <laughs> yeah, and so, then, you know, it's funny is that the first nine, ten shows we recorded, I didn't know what a fucking RSS feed was. I didn't know how to release a podcast. They were just sitting on my hard drive. Yeah, And about three or four months later, Corey Glover, who's in a band called Living Color, is a friend of mine for years, called me and goes, what happened to that fucking podcast I did with you like three months ago? Is it going to come out? I'm like, yeah, I probably should figure out how to release these things. (laughs) So I joined the Reddit forum. I joined a couple of like websites. Now it's much easier. But six, seven years ago, you had to create your RSS feed. You had to find a hosting. Like Now you could just download Anchor and get it up and running. But I just spent a week figuring it all out and released like nine episodes at once and just started the show that way. Yeah. Yeah. It, did you meet uh, Louis J. Gomez through Big J or just through? Yeah. So Louis and Dave came on Shiprocked, I think uh, one year apart. I think Dave one year, Louis the next year as uh, openers for J on Shiprock. Yeah. And then um, Legion obviously started to get somewhat big and rap and SDR, excuse me. I think rap started first, but around the same time, give or take a year. Legion's about three years older, right? Yeah. I think Legion is 10 years old. Rap is like eight years old and STR is like six and a half years old, right? But him and I would talk a lot and share stories on how to promote your podcast. And like, oh, this worked for me. Oh, this worked for me. Oh, we should. And we just shared stories all the time. And originally, <clears throat> we were going to open up a nightclub, but it was going to be a podcast nightclub. That was the idea. Yeah. But it was going to, so a comedy club that it was geared towards podcasting. But we just couldn't find a place that financially made sense because it's so expensive to get a liquor license for the right space to fill out a whole studio. So then we pivoted and said, let's just, you know, I was doing radio. I had a syndicated radio show where you take 50 small stations, a hundred small stations, you put them together, you have a quarter of a million listeners. So I said, why don't we take four or five small shows like ours? Put them together, and then you get a decent amount of listeners. And so when we launched, I think we had four shows and 10,000 listeners a week combined, I think, roughly. And now, you know, I don't know where we're at exactly, but it's 20-something shows and a few million listeners a week or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. It's pretty wild. But it's been, you know, five years. Yeah, we got a shout-out, Rap Real-Ass Podcast. Yeah. And, you know, Michael Bisbing Show, which is uh, BYM, believe you me. We're yeah. launching, um, as we're taping this, Aaron Berg, who's a comic, is going to launch on the network. And uh, Zach Wild from Ozzy's Band yeah, is yeah, yeah. starting his podcast on the network in January. Um, so I'm excited about that. Those will be our two newer shows. I'm excited for him, and I love yeah. the network. I think the, the, that network, Gas Digital, is the best network for comedy going, I feel. I appreciate <laughs> it. Just our, our fucking website sucks, but uh, that's it. You know, it, it's just, it's a, people do not understand how difficult the back end is and how expensive the back end is. I got an email a couple months ago. It was like, how come on YouTube you can do this, but on gas digital you can't? And I wrote, are you asking me why a billion dollar company can do things that we can't do? I don't understand the question. 
because they're billionaires and we're not. That's why. You know, everything costs a fortune to redo the website. We're talking a hundred thousand dollars minimum to redo the website. So, you know, we want to do it. We want to do an app. We want to do all these things, but it's fucking expensive. I always said we're going to be a content creation company that's going to be judged on technology. That's why I never wanted to do an app. I never, I know, I just, it was a fucking pain in the ass. We wasted a fortune, but no, whatever it is. So I hate that people get mad. And I know I'm the one that's trying to fix it night and day, but there's just limitations when you are, for better or for worse, we're a mom and pop company. We're owned by two people, you know? Yeah, it's a crazy thing. It's like the, the, the fans are a blessing and a curse sometimes because they love oh, yeah. you, but the, the, the curse is they love you so much that when it's not there, they get upset. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't believe the people. There's some people that have stuck with us for the entire ride. How they've stayed subscribers, I don't know. It's amazing because we've had so many fucking problems. These days, now it's just everything kind of works, but it's just not a great experience. Yeah. I would love to just rebuild. The only way to do it is to rebuild from the ground up. The problem is, we haven't figured out a way to do it yet where everybody wouldn't have to resubscribe. And that's a fucking disaster to ask everybody to resubscribe. So until we can figure out how to avoid that, it doesn't make sense yet. And I'm sure we'll figure it out. It's just a matter of time. I know you you worked on VH1 Classics and uh, VH1, I think, Top 40 Worst Metal Songs. Yeah, I was like a talking head for like three or four different shows where, you know, and I was so excited. Like when I first went, again, not that I'm a comic, but I wrote jokes for every show, every song, right? Thinking that, oh, I have this great line for this, I have this great line for that. And when I got there, that's not how they do it. They've already figured out the joke and they just want you to add to it. So like that's why they all if you ever their shows aren't really on anymore, but it would be like four or five people that had slight variations of the same joke. And that was because it was very constructed that way. Like you don't need to come in with a fucking creative concept because they figured it out already. So that wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. You're just basically regurgitating what they tell you to say. You know, maybe put your little spin on it. But again, those shows don't exist anymore. And then I was a VJ on VH one classic. Maybe six, eight months, right? But the weirdest thing happened. It was me and Eddie Trunk, right? Mm. Who's another rock guy. Yeah, yeah. I would do week one. He would do week two. I would do week three. He would do week four. And they didn't have a lot of budget. The way we would do it is you'd show up on a Monday. You would tape eight hours. And then the following week, you were on all week. So it looked like you were there all day. They paid you for one day. That's how they did it, right? Yeah. And I made the biggest mistake in my life, which was a hard lesson to learn. I got a big lump in my throat. And found out it was precancerous and I needed to have surgery, right? <clears throat> and the surgery, they said, we need to do this now. So, all right, I did the mistake of calling them because I was going to tape in two weeks. I just taped and I was going to get that surgery. And I said, listen, I don't know how long this recovery is going to take. So you may want to have me skip the next one just so that you're covered. I don't want to leave you. Next Monday, I can't come in or I come in and I can't record. And they said, don't worry, your job's safe with us. Okay? They fought, They ended up, Eddie goes in the next week. He goes, well, where's Ralph? He's not here. Well, why don't you just hire me full time then? And that's what happened. Put him in a trunk. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, he, he, he hated me for a long time. He still does. Yeah. Um, I've tried to break bread. They did that show called uh, That Metal Show, right? Yeah. And I'm friends with Don Jameson, who I just did his show a couple weeks ago. 
and I'm friends with uh, Jim Florentine, I would love the three of them to come in and do SDR, and we could tell the story of why he hates me so much, and yeah. let's talk it out. But yeah. he won't do it. He won't do it. He's afraid. It's just I weird. It. <laughs> he's also more popular than me. You know, his fucking, he's still on TV, I think. I don't know. I don't follow his career. But no, his radio show. <laughs> Say again? Yeah, no one. But TV to me, it's like, you know, you, at the time, you won. You know, you're yeah. doing better. Let's talk about it. Talk about how you destroyed me. I don't fucking care. Let's talk about it. You, you won't do it. He's afraid, man. He's maybe. Maybe. I don't maybe. know. Or he doesn't care. One or the other. He cares. He cares. I think everybody cares. They just don't they don't want you to know. Yeah. Maybe. So that's a scary guy. You, you got a pre-cancer lump in your throat. And you never, did you smoke cigarettes? I know you no, said you didn't do no, drugs and drinking. Nothing. Yeah. I just, it really? was so weird because like literally in the course of six months, that's why I don't know if you can see, like my neck hang, hangs down a lot more than it should because I had surgery right there and it just fucked up the musculature under my throat. And uh, it was weird because it got like exponentially bigger in the course of six months, and they did a, a test, and the test was inconclusive but potentially precancerous. So they're like, we can wait and see. I'm like, wait and see? Mm. We'll find out it's fucking cancerous? Just fucking take it out. Yeah. You know, so that's what they did. And it wasn't, it was precancerous, whatever the fuck that means. But that was uh, 13 years ago now. So, you know, thank I'm God. you still here, man. Yeah, yeah. thank God. Yeah. Cancer is fucking weird. They say that everybody's born with it. It just grows quicker in people or something like that. I mean, my father passed away from it five years ago now. He got it once when he was um, 60. He had uh, prostate cancer. Then it came back when he was 80 as bladder cancer. And they say if it ever comes back a second time, you ain't beating it. That's like the, if you beat it the first time, you know, there's a 50-50 chance you go on forever and you're fine. But if it comes back, your 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 chance of survival is very very low. And that a feel good moment for all of us. My dad's dead, everybody. Woo, <laughs> wee. <laughs> well, we all we all go. We all go. Yeah, that's right. Like one of my best friends, his father died the week before mine, right, or maybe six months before mine. And I said to him, dude, it's not like five years from now the story's going to be, hey, guess what? Everybody lives forever. Congratulations. Right. It's just going to be either one of us is dead or more people around us is dead. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. Just appreciate what you have now. I try to really, part of the, of the Good Sugar Show uh, is really trying to focus me in on really appreciate the moments. Appreciate yeah. right now. Like, I love the fact that I am. Look, we're doing a show on a Sunday. I'm sitting home in my house. I don't have to go out in the cold and do fucking yard work or whatever the fuck. I don't have to take care of a kid. Whatever it is. I am pretty content and yeah. be happy in the moments. And that's really all you can do. Yeah. And I'm don't leave bad. any shit unresolved. If you have a friend that you're not talking to because they fucking shit on your rug once or whatever, <laughs> fucking make up those goddamn, make them up, make up. Either make up or get them out of your life for good and don't hold on to that resentment. Yeah. Hey, Matt, you do have to clean up that uh, big shit. Yeah. I heard you shit all over the place, man. Well, it's okay. <laughs> It's going to be worth money one day. Uh, yeah, That's why I bronzed it. <laughs> How did you end up on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? So during the radio show days, my co-host at the time, the one I found as the permanent co-host after my initial co-host left, um, she saw the first episode. And she came in and said, this will be the best promotion in the world for our show. We got to get you on. So we downloaded the form off the website. I made my answers as fun and funny as I thought I could make them. 
and I found the worst possible picture of myself, sent it in on a Saturday. They called me that Monday. They're looking for a radio guy, right? And so we talked back and forth. They came and met me a couple days later. That Friday, they tell me, you're in. We're going to do an episode on you. That weekend, I could not have been happier. That Monday, a week later now, they get back to me and say, listen, they had a second chance, a second thought. They're going to go with someone else. So unfortunately, uh, it's not going to be you. Ah, God damn it. At least I had a happy weekend, but now I'm fucking miserable, right? (laughs) And um, I say to them, I call them back like an hour later, and I say, listen, I was ready to do this. I was going to cut my hair. I was going to buy some new clothes. I know you guys already started that path with me, so just tell me where you were going to take me, and I'm going to fucking do it myself. And they were so moved by that, the producer went back in and fought for me, and then I got on. And that's how I got on, because they felt I was going to do it anyway. They were so impressed by that. Then they fought for me and got me back on. So in 2003, we filmed it in the end of the year. It premiered February of 2004, and it was the most watched episode of all time. The reason why I know that for sure is I just did the reunion last year, uh, which was on uh, E! And uh, I was with all the guys. We did a reunion one-off special called Road Trip Reunion, where they did we united a different cast of a different show each week for like a month or two. And they told me, yeah, yours was the most watched episode of all time. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah can't beat that. Yeah. And Vince Neil from Motley Crue came on, did us a favor, performed live, which was cool. It was great. I got hooked up on a date. I ended up dating that chick for a few months. Pretty cool. It was a good, good episode. You can find it on a YouTube. You just Google Queer Eye Radio Ralph and it comes up. Hell yeah. I, I, I also heard you dated a famous film director's sister. Uh, film director's sister, or maybe uh, maybe not fully date. Uh, uh, El Mariachi. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, Mr. yeah, yeah. Robert Sorry. Rodrigo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it was um, <laughs> I briefly dated the uh, what's his name's sister? Um, the guy from Mariachi. Robert, um, Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez's yeah. sister. Her name is Patricia. I met her when I was working on a street corner trying to get people to sign up for Time Warner surveys about internet or not internet yeah. but like well, cable whatever and we became friendly we exchanged numbers and then we started dating briefly we're still friendly to this day um jay didn't believe me so i'm trying to get her to come to new york and do the show because uh, every time jay doesn't believe me on something almost every time i've been able to prove myself right yeah, yeah. the only one i couldn't so far is is uh the um the, the breakdancing movie uh, crush groove because you just can't see me in the fucking one scene you it's not hd it's a half second. Most of that scene got cut. Yeah. But the girl that sang the song of the movie is called I Believe in the Beat. On her album, it says, thanks to Ralph and Joe Sutton for my breakdance lessons. So it's there's the proof there. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> he didn't believe that I DJed for the 9-11 terrorists, you know. Yeah. Um, but I found an article online and showed him that it said they interviewed the staff of a strip club in Wayne, New Jersey. It was the only strip club in Wayne, New Jersey at that time. So there you go, you know. So I've been able over and over again. He didn't believe I was on fucking Twenty One Jump Street, yeah. and I found the episode and I showed it to him on the show. So over and over again, I've been able to prove myself right. He didn't believe I was friends with fucking Zach Wild for God's sakes, and I was doing a show on the network. There it is. I like it. You know, he he should just just take it as fact. Whatever you say is true, because you keep on 
proving him yeah. wrong. I mean, I wanted on. to make one of the things I was going to do was just make a list of everything I said that he didn't believe and then show the proof. But yeah. I just did. The, the fans hate me enough already. I don't need to do it. You know, they're just going to get <laughs> just me rubbing my face, his face in it. You know? Yeah. Let me see here. Um, I know that usually, you know, this is a great episode. Usually when we wind down, we used to ask, like to ask a question. We get a lot of artists and filmmakers, musicians, listen to the show and stuff. You know, every now and then things can get really discouraging and not look a little bleak. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You have any advice for people that might be going through like a, a rough patch in their artistic ability uh, that might keep them going? So my, my favorite thing to do, and this holds true for everything in life, is having accountability to somebody, right? Finding someone in your life that you can talk to even if it's like a casual thing where you update them, they update you, and your your brain will eventually start feeling like, oh, I need to do that, or else they're going to think I'm slacking. You know. So for me, that's what's made the biggest difference in my life is having. So we are social creatures. We want to have friends. We want to have people around us. So if you could find a couple of positive people in your life that you can have this accountability and this mutual sharing. There's nothing better. There really isn't. And I, I'm a big advocate of those. You know, I understand we all want to be alone once in a while. We all want to shut off the world once in a while. But having someone that you can be accountable to about just existing. Like I share my runs with six people. They all share theirs with me. I share my, you know, I do the, the Good Sugar podcast. Part of the reason is I have to own up to what I did that week. Yeah. I don't lie. So if I fucking ate like shit, oh, it's like I'm about to eat this. Like I got to talk about those four fucking cookies I ate for no reason on the show tomorrow. You know, so I feel that having accountability does wonders for us. And then the other theory that I'm a big advocate of is either you call it baby steps or micro changes or little thing, whatever it is, make those small insignificant changes that you think sound insignificant and pair them up with things you're already doing. So if you're already making coffee every morning, do a push up right before you make the coffee every morning. Eventually, it's going to become part of the habit, mm. and you'll start feeling that you're building those good habits around the things you're already doing, and it makes it a lot easier to do. That's good advice. Yeah, I do want to tip back into that nine eleven thing real quick. Okay, so, <laughs> I, I kind of glossed over that. So the um, yeah, you performed for them. They 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 went and partied. I, like before, I was I was this DJ, right? the strip club DJ, the Saturday before the Tuesday. The guys that went to the Pentagon were in my club in Jersey. And uh, I DJed for them. The FBI came in to question us all because they were on camera and, and whatever. And the crazy story was one of the guys, when the girl asked him, what did you do for a living? He said he was an airline pilot. And then when he was leaving, he told her, hey, stay out of New York next week. And she was like, what? But at the time, it was a fucking idiot saying... Three days later, it was scary as shit, you know, but that's just pretty wild. And they had them on camera. They had the, the credit card bills. And I was interviewed by, the, I inter, uh, interviewed by the FBI guys. I was like, guys, I could tell you what songs they liked. I don't know how that helped your investigation. That's the only thing I know. I didn't say any fucking words to them. But coincidentally, it was the second time I was uh, questioned by the FBI because when I was 14, I was wanted for computer hacking. And the FBI came to my house, and I was supposed to go to jail for computer hacking at 14 years old. Shit. Yeah, pretty funny. 
the that, that the the fucking the strip that must have been a good champagne room visit if he's giving her the tip of uh she could have yeah, like <laughs> yeah stay out of New York They're like right that was the best blowjob of my life I <laughs> want this girl to stay alive exactly imagine if 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 obviously she didn't know what the hell was going on yeah. but imagine if that stopped nine eleven yeah imagine also by the way which is really sad one of the girls from my strip club quit a week prior to take a financial job. At the World Trade Center, and she fucking died in the World Trade Center. Wow! Oh my God! How fucking wow. crazy is that? She she was turning over a new leaf. She was like, yeah. "Woohoo, we're going! Yeah. They're gonna be making the pursuit of happiness too about me yeah. later." That's fucking crazy. That's so crazy. My cousin, who was Ooh. went worked in that building in that area too, he came out of the train station, saw the first plane hit, and just turned around, went home. Crazy. The crazy <laughs> time to be crazy. in New York. Yeah, that was fucking wild. Yeah, you're, you've you've been in New York your whole life, right? For the most yeah. part. Yeah, I mean, I've been to about sixty countries. I travel a lot, but I've lived in the city. This has been my permanent residence my whole life. Do you remember where you were when nine eleven happened? Oh yeah, my mom woke me up because she called to say, "Are you guys okay?" Because I was on thirtieth something, thirty eighth Street. I could see the the World Trade Center out of my south facing window, but it was kind of far away. But I could see it. And my mother called us when the first plane hit, and I went to go look out the window. And we saw the second plane hit from wow. the window. Pretty crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Pretty wild. And then uh, the crazy thing was, I, my girlfriend was living at the time, and she had two girlfriends in town that stayed in my apartment that night because they all went out, and they were, they were going to go home the next day. They ended up living in my fucking apartment for a month because nobody <laughs> could go anywhere. It was horrible. Yeah. Dude, they were know. hot, and we were having foursomes. It would have been great, but none of that happened. <laughs> There wasn't anything to celebrate that day, unfortunately. <laughs> and hacking, the hacking thing, I, I looked into that a little bit. I heard about um, you changed around some fun things, uh, like a phone bill, I think you said. Yeah, or, we used to do stupid grades. shit like that. That's how we did. We, also, what's funny is that, um, again, you got to go, this is back 84, you know, no, 85 maybe. There was no internet, yeah. right? There was what they call bulletin boards where you dial up one place and only one person could be connected at a time. Somehow my brother and I found a guy in Europe that we were friends with and we would send him games that were only available in the United States and he would send us games that are only available in Europe and then we would crack them and then we would get exclusive like, holy shit, these guys shared games that nobody else had and we were so stupid. All these crackers had cool names like Kilroy and Charlotte. Uh, one guy was a uh, Humphrey magician. All these. We called ourselves the Sutton brothers, which is our fucking name. We just didn't even think about it, that it was illegal. I don't know what the fuck we were thinking, but we got caught on something stupid. It wasn't even about that. We got caught on something. My father got a lawyer. We got off. We, nothing ever bad happened, but for a while, we were scared shit. Um, but yeah, we used to do things like change our friend's grades, change our phone bill. It was a lot easier back then. You know? If you, if you transferred uh, squid games, they would have killed you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and still, to this day, like the computer I'm talking to you on, I built this computer. I still... Sure like to do that shit, you know? That's why I have an Android, not an iPhone. I like the open architecture of it. Yeah. Better man than me in many ways, and that's oh, one yeah. of them right there. Dang. <laughs> well, Ralph, this was fucking awesome. Yeah. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Do you want sure. to uh, tell, tell the folks where they can check out your shows and, and, sure. and on Amazon and stuff, I'm sure? So it's very easy. Follow me everywhere at I am Ralph Sutton and I am Ralph Sutton.com at I am Ralph Sutton. My two podcasts are the SDR show, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll show, and the Good Sugar podcast. Uh, both are available anywhere you would consume uh, YouTube videos or podcasts. 
My book you could find on Amazon. It's really just good as a gag gift for uh, anybody that you're secret Santaing that's been struggling with losing weight. And you could find that at I am Ralph Sutton. There's a link there. There's a link in my Instagram profile as well. And then of course, Gas Digital Network. We have 22 shows, two new ones coming in January. And uh, that's it, guys. Thank you for having me on, Matt oh, and yeah, Alex. Thank you very much. Support the shows, the network, great people, all of them, very funny stuff, uh, and great. Well, thanks yeah. again. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, anytime. You, you know, we'd love to have you on again sometime. You know what I mean? Wait, I'll give you my, my little mini-me to say goodbye. Hold on a second. Here we go. <laughs> and hold on. There's me. I like it. <laughs> like it. Gelatin. I'm digging it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Hold guys. Huh. All right. Have all a good right. Sunday. See you, you too, guys. Take care, man. Bye. 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 And, ladies and gentlemen, that was the great Ralph Sutton. Again, we thank him for coming on the show. Thank you. I know we're big fans of uh, Gas Digital. You know, SDR show, great. Good Sugar, great. You know what I mean? There's a lot of other shows. The Legion of Skanks on that network is fucking ridiculously great. Uh, Real Ass Podcast with our boy fucking Zach Amico. Yeah. This guy got to act with him in the last Troma movie. Okay. And we kind of known Zach throughout the little independent underground acting community for years now. Because he's, uh, he's been working with Troma for a while. So... That was great. That was boombastically, castically fantastic. Uh, where if you enjoyed this, you should go watch and listen wherever you heard it. Uh, whether it be the Boombastic Media YouTube page, where you can see our video interviews, or you go on, you know, Spotify or Apple, wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out Boombastic Cast there. And uh, you want to support? We got Boombastic streaming at Patreon. You know, you get a bunch of cool perks for y'all out there. And uh, definitely, we thank you all for listening. And I uh, will catch you all on the next episode of the Boombastic Cast. Peace. Oh, yeah, your fingers. Peace.